Welcome to Polyphony. I am your co-host, Rachel Schoenbaum. And on today's episode, we are talking about racism in acapella. We have three fantastic guests with us today. We have Jasmine Barnes, a member of Halo, which is Barbershop's first international African-American quartet. Currently, she is also the head of compositional studies and jazz voice studies at Booker T. Washington School for the Arts. We also have Brian Guffey, an activist and was the diversity and inclusion coordinator for Women's Acapella Association and participated in Broadway Goes Acapella. Was featured on recording acapella. And we also have Isaiah Hawkins, who is a renowned acapella vocalist, arranger, songwriter, and educator, in addition to being the relationship manager for CASA for the North Region, and a former MD or music director of MSU's State of Fifths. So I take this time to first welcome our guests and also to introduce you to our host for this evening, as always, Aaron Director, founder of Acaville. Thanks so much, Rachel. I appreciate it. I would love to start, you know, this is a big topic, and I have no sort of illusions that we're going to be able to cover the entire waterfront in the hour that we have together. But I would love to start by kind of framing the state of things and sort of where we are, where we've been, and maybe kind of go around and talk a little bit about what experiences you've had or you've experienced or you've observed or kind of give us a state of the union as you see it. And maybe, Brian, if, do you mind kicking us off? Sure. So a little bit about me. I am probably the only person possibly, we'll find out on this call, who wasn't in acapella in college, just by sort of, oh, excellent. By a quirk of nature, I was a musical theater kid in college, and my school at the time didn't have any acapella groups. I came back later, wasted a whole lot of money doing a year of grad school and starting Kent State's acapella community. But that part was not the waste. The grad, the rest of the grad school stuff was. So my perspective has mostly been as a coach and an educator and a clinician and working at events. And what I see when I look at the landscape is what we see, I think, in a lot of popular culture, which is groups using the language and experiences of other groups, of other marginalized groups and culture, and not necessarily understanding the context behind it, and therefore giving performances that can be a bit hollow or flattened because they are not informed with the sort of stories behind things. I also see groups that are more diverse now than they were, but still could be much more diverse. There are many places and many groups where it's just a sea of white. And, you know, and that's just one type of diversity. I think one of the things that's important to think about here is when we talk about racism and diversity in acapella, you know, if you don't include all of us, you're not including, you know, any of us. And what I mean by that is you can have, you know, black people but if you don't have all types of black people, which includes just, you know, people with disabilities, people of different sizes, all sorts of things. Like if you don't, if you don't have the breadth of who we are, then you only have a portion of who we are. And I still see a lot of ableism and sizeism in the community. And I think that's something that we definitely still struggle with. Absolutely. Isaiah, do you want to pick up on that? Kind of where, where are you? What, what have your experiences been around this? What are you seeing right now? Yeah, I've seen a lot of the same, especially with the groups doing songs and telling stories. My big focus through all this is to view through a lens of storytelling. And I see quite a bit of performing stories that they don't entirely understand the background behind. And that's clear in a lot of lenses. It's clear in groups doing songs from cultures that they don't either identify with in terms of like their racial identity and people in the group 
or they haven't done the homework to do accurately and perform authentically. And there are just a lot of questions that in in the musical sense just have not been asked. And I see us moving more in that direction, but we're still a little bit behind. But also in where Brian mentioned the how groups are becoming more diverse, I see that as I agree in that that's, we're in the starting phases of that. When I was at Michigan State, myself and a friend of mine were the second and third black people to have been in our group. And at the time, it's what, six year history. And by the end of that, I was, while I was music director, was the first time in Michigan State's history that the majority of groups on campus had black music directors. And you could see how that changed the identity of the groups and not just the music that they were performing and beyond the general shift of what early 2010s acapella sounded like to what kinds of music groups are able to and what kind of music groups are looking forward, looking out to doing. But just the identity of these groups shifted. And you can see that across the country. Probably my favorite acapella group to listen to is Pitch Slap. And during my time in college, seeing the racial identity of that group completely shift was from the other side of the country, wild to watch. And I've seen that with a number of the groups that I've been working with as well. Jasmine, you know, you come from a a really interesting additional perspective with the barbershop side of that. And barbershop has, I think, a more well-known longer history than sort of contemporary acapella, which brings sort of better and worse uh, along with it, I think, with some of the legacy of what's going on. What are you seeing in that community? So barbershop community, I think, right, to make strides as we all are seeing, we're seeing people try. We're seeing people actually try, which is in a way... It's like partially refreshing, but it's also, it has residue of other things that, so for the barbershop community may not know the history of barbershop. So barbershop started in the African-American community completely. Quartet music started in the African-American community. Somewhere along the way, it was adapted and these societies were formed to have a central place for people to actually sing barbershop and compete and all these things like this. So, you know, competitions and things of that sort was that in their bylaws, African-Americans were excluded from it. So not only did that remove the style of music from the Black community, I wouldn't say altogether, but heavily. Today, we look at the residues and we see that a lot of people clue. A lot of people in my community have no clue what barbershop music is without this image of a white man in stripes and a top hat. That That's just the reality. We're facing, you know, we're facing the residue of these issues never being actually resolved. We're facing a lot of cover-up now actually being unveiled to be something a little bit different. So even what we would have considered good intentions up to now still have a little bit of residue in them. So we're just, we're sifting through things. Being a part of the quartet that I'm a part of, Halo, we were the first African-American quartet to compete on the international stage of any barbershop society. You know what I mean? So it's like for that to happen in 2015 was like late really late for the representation. And even even in us being in the only, you know, African-American quartet to do so, we were like one of the few African, period. It, it wasn't even just, oh, they're a quartet. It was like, oh, it's like, like three other people that look like me here. Cool. Like, and that was it, it. You know what I mean? So we just knew that it was something that needs to come back to the community. So what I see, my, my preamble, like, or my, my unions, I see the strides, but I think until empathy is actually inserted into communities that don't identify with communities that are actually talking right now, 
about our experiences, I think until the empathy is really set in, it won't really, nothing will really change until we can recognize that we are not the only person on the planet and that we live with other people and other people have to get along with us, not just get along with us, but other people have to feel comfortable the same way you feel comfortable in some of the environments that, you know what I mean? Yeah. Do you feel like the, you talk about the barbershop community starting from a place of excluding people of color and not, you know, the the sort of the overt policy around that has changed, but it seems like the sort of covert or unspoken cultural barriers around that still are keeping a lot of people of color from perhaps feeling welcome or feeling interested in being a part of that community. Is that changing? Is that something that, I mean, how do you get your hands around sort of moving from the the sort of formalized exclusion to getting more active inclusion? So one thing I notice just in general, you know, even outside of barbershop, when the idea of integration per se comes to play, there has to be space for those that were excluded to enter that space, if that makes any sense. It can't be business as usual. And oh yeah, you can come. Sure, you can join. It's kind of like, what does that do if the communities have no clue that you exist in the first place? It's kind of elitist to think that everyone should just come to you. It's, it's actually rooted out of a real elitism issue. So I think the way to actually, if you want diversity and inclusion, even though I feel diversity is crucial in itself because diverse means separate and different. That literally means different, like separate. And so I think the idea of understanding that we are together in the first place would erase some of those things. Now, the other thing is you have to understand culturally where people are coming from and what will make them interested in your community. And what can you do to help that community, um, not even just help the community, but to create relationships in those communities? Because it's not enough to say, sure, we save the seat for you and not go actually out into the community in the first place. So yeah, I think I, I see the strides. I do see the strides. I see I see the backlash too from the street. I see all of it. I see people being offended that rules are changing in the space that they've been so comfortable for so many years. It's like, how dare you change something one else that's not even here? It's like, do you want them? You know, what do you want? What what exactly do you want? So yeah, that's what I see. What I would like to see is more involvement in communities. I was fortunate to work with my quartet. We sang and taught for the North Carolina Jobless. And I hope I'm not wrong about that. And we actually were on an HBCU campus, Chapel Hill, I believe. And we worked with the students together. Not only, you know, was it introducing to them that they were already familiar with, if we're being clear, they were already familiar with singing in four-part harmony. That's not anything new in the Black community. But we introduced them to singing it in a barbershop style. Flawless. I mean, when I say like, it was, it was, you could tell it was a reintroduction community and not something brand new. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. And those kind of relationships that are built in that, they, you know, they're like, I want to come back next time. When you guys doing this again? When will you be here again? Can we, can we join barbershop things in the community? What can we do? So now, now you could do them in the first place and not expect them and didn't expect them to just, hey, come come to me. I have like, no, it doesn't work. I think one point that you make, uh, Jasmine, that's really important. And so, I mean, and I think it's important to note that Jasmine's group is a group that those students could identify with immediately, right? I think it's really important for barbershop groups and quartets and choruses that are made up of a lot of white people to go into those same spaces and be like, we are here 
because we want to get to know you, right? We want to share what we have, but we also want to learn from you, right? You know, they, I think one of the struggles that happens there, and I hear this a lot from white people, is they're nervous. They're worried about doing something wrong. And the reality is, is they're going to do something. You're going to say something wrong. You're going to make a mistake and that's okay. Right. I have yet to meet a single black person, actually, who is like, oh, that white person made one mistake and they apologize, but it doesn't matter. Like, that's the end of it. Like that, that idea is a that idea is a defense mechanism that white people use to not have to engage. Right. To stay where they feel comfortable instead of moving into a space where they they are not the majority. They are the minority. Right. Where they choose to put themselves in a place of vulnerability like that. And that is, you know, that that is an active choice that many of us, we don't have to. We don't have to try to put ourselves in being the minority. It is the, the experience we live in every single day. And so we're very we're very used to being in that space. Right. But if you've never been in that space before, it can be discomforting. The other thing I want to point out is that while we are three black people on this call talking about this, there are the Asian community, the Latinx community, the South Asian community. Like there are so many communities that experience this exact same thing. The LGBTQIA+, right? Absolutely. As a member of both of those communities. But one thing that I think is really, and many of those groups have done, those communities have done amazing work sort of creating their own spaces. Some of that is because they had the opportunity to create those spaces, right? There's a unique history for black and indigenous people in this country about their not only being excluded from white spaces but being kept from creating their own spaces which is why I think you don't you haven't seen traditionally the same sort of explosion of black sort of like black culture acapella groups on their own right especially at the collegiate level right where you do see that with many other cultures you know and i think that's really important to note that there is like this is not about the acapella community but the acapella community is a part of the larger society so we don't get to be exempt from it right it means that when black people come into those spaces first of all we've been so divorced from our heritage as jasmine pointed out you know like four parts singing singing together is nothing new but let me tell you about the number of people who think acapella is corny and some of that some of that story is is something that was perpetuated upon us, right? And people have to learn, you know, to, that's why it's so important to go to, like, if we take the barbershop conversation and move it to contemporary acapella, I can't tell you, what was it, a couple of years ago, there was a group from Yale, and there was a video, and it looked like they had been really particular about United Colors of Benettoning their group. It's a bunch of white people, and then, like, one of every ethnicity they could seem to get their hands on. And I called it out, and boy, were a lot of people upset, right? Because it was important. They were like, what are we supposed to do? go get people who don't want to audition to audition? The answer is yes. That is what you're supposed to do. Now, I will point out, even in just the two years since then to now, the change, I think, has been really phenomenal to see. And part of that, I think, is important to note, it has almost nothing to do with any of the people, which I think we'll get into in the next thing, any of the policy makers or larger bigwids in acapella, or the acarati, as they're sometimes called, as much as it just has to do with younger people coming into the community and bringing a more open mind. I want to pick up on Isaiah something else that you mentioned as a from a storytelling perspective that comes up in this conversation as well and it kind of starts to get into the appropriation question around you know, are there bounds on what a group can reasonably do if they don't have representation in their group about it? If they're and what does that look like and if not, how does a group do the homework to make it 
more understandable for them? I mean, sort of what's your take on on that whole piece of it? Well, for me, the short answer is yes. <laughs> for me, it comes from, from an angle of authenticity. And if this is a, everything you put up on a stage when you perform, that is something that is a story you are telling. That is a be it a version of yourself or a message that you are coming that you are putting across to an audience to represent you. If that message cannot conceivably come from you, it doesn't as it definitively and unavoidably sounds like someone else's words coming out of your mouth and it doesn't sound like you like mean it at the very least, then it just is not a good performance at the, at the first glance. And then it comes to the issues of whose story are you telling and who are you using, whose voices are you shutting down by being the one to put this forward? I'll give you an example from my own past. While I was in State of Fifths, we, two weeks, three weeks before ICCA, could not come up with a closer. I arranged one that the group was iffy about, and instead of fighting it, I decided, okay, let's pick another one. The song we ended up doing was Freedom by Beyonce. My group should not have done Freedom by Beyonce. And I said, they were, as one of the two black people in the group at that time, we should not have done Freedom by Beyonce. Because there's so much power in that song, and there's so much of a history and a strong message. And while the set we were telling, and I craft all narrative sets and my arrangements, while the set we were telling could conceivably tell that message, that song is so much more powerful than we were able to put on stage. And that set's on YouTube. If anyone watches it, it shows. (laughs) So like, it just comes from a matter of what you want, just from a musical standpoint, what kind of performance you want to put on stage to represent yourself. And then, of course, from a cultural lens, let's maybe center somebody else who, from whom that message would be more authentic. Now, I put this on Twitter a long time ago, and I'm still waiting to see if it ever manifests into the world, but I would love nothing more than to see an all-black acapella group do a mashup of Freedom by Beyonce and Kendrick Lamar and They Don't Care About Us by Michael Jackson. Like, that is something I need to exist because those songs both have that powerful, and we're going to get into this later on with another topic, powerful social justice message talking about the oppression of black people over generations and generations. And that message does not come across when it's an all-white group. Now, when we one of the other things mentioned in that what can groups do to do their homework in this sense and that i believe is something that groups can do a lot of it comes with what brian has talked about in doing the work in diversifying your group and getting those voices to the table to tell that story but also in understanding making clear that you understand the struggle that goes into making these songs another thing that i've come up against very often is that People believe that music somehow exists in a vacuum. Like, it's separate from... They don't like hearing politics in their music. When, as music is an expression of culture, everything is linked. Like, when people are telling their story, their and their story is that of oppression, and their story is that of systematic racism and genocide oftentimes, that's not just something that can be accurately ignored and still having a story told that is somewhat accurate. So there are just a lot of things that people need to just have in mind. And I say that it sounds not enough, but just the fact that this is something that you're thinking about, this is something that you're considering worrying about is a step. It's not all of it. It's not all of the work, but just the consideration in taking into account the history and having that kind of, if it's a song that your group is doing, 
having the difficult conversation, even if it's awkward, even if you don't know what people might say, it's still a step and it's still important. Absolutely. We have so much more to talk about, but we need to take a little bit of a break. So on the other side, we'll be talking about, about how do we reduce racism at the group level, at an organizational level, at competitions and festivals, things like that. We'll be talking about how do we create more opportunities for equity and equality. And we're going to talk also about the cultures within the groups themselves and how we can make those more welcoming. So uh, we'll be having so much more on the other side and, and stick with us. We'll be right back. Are you an aspiring sound engineer? Have we got a show for you? The Headroom Podcast is a podcast for aspiring sound engineers in the contemporary acapella genre. Join Kyle Howard and Ricky Jabarin as they break down the different stages of audio production and chat with other producers about their techniques to achieving the best sound. You can find the Headroom Podcast on Acaville Radio Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Remember, Acaville is the place where you can find all the latest in acapella information. We are back with Polyphony, and we're speaking with Jasmine Barnes, who's from Halo, Brian Guffey, activist, and Isaiah Hawkins. Uh, and here's Aaron. Thanks, Rachel. Jasmine, I wonder about, you know, we're talking about the idea of authenticity and rep choice and sort of figuring out how to pick music that reflects who you are as a group. And it seems like in the barbershop world right now, there's also a lot of reckoning going on around sort of standard literature and standard rep and what's kind of in and out. And I wonder what your thoughts are around those conversations and what more kind of needs to be done there. So I try to avoid these conversations as much as I can online because it will end up being like a back and forth, you know, a feeling of nostalgia for some people that comes with these Dixie songs and these songs that glorify the South and these minstrel songs, if we're being honest. And for some, it is there is some nostalgia there. And one thing I'm learning, especially from the members of my quartet, we have a program called Race and Real and we discuss racial and all difficult conversations through the lens of barbershop music. So I'm learning how to accept where people are in their journey in a way. Like while I'm while I'm still telling them about my experiences, I can't expect them to just get it. And I have to accept where they are in their journey. So I'm learning that and it is definitely helping me on online. Okay, anyways. Yeah, so when when these conversations come up about the Dixie songs and the mental songs and, and the pain that I feel when I hear them because I know where they come from and I know why, you know, what connotations was really meant in these songs, what time period it was written for, what kind of of stage performance it was before when I know these things and I hear it it like crumbles me like it literally it like makes me angry okay I'll just it makes me angry okay and so I try to explain my experience and then sometimes I met with it doesn't feel that way to me I think this one growing up you know yeah we get it but one thing I like to say in response to that is why why in your level of comfortability are you okay with making someone else com- uncomfortable like because once stated to you you shouldn't continue doing it if you want them to stay around you it's kind of like it's kind of simple so then you know our words up racist and then all you know all breaks loose i think most people are really afraid of that word because they don't understand it that it comes with more than just prejudice and name calling it doesn't, it's not just slurs it's microaggressions it's how you uh, make the rules of your organization it's how you interact with the people that are around you it's it's so many levels it's not just you know a racial slur or it's not just some type of not even just racial slur you know just stereotypes it's not just that it's multi-layered 
And if you don't understand that when someone says I'm uncomfortable with what you're doing and you continue to do it, that is an absolute slap in the face. It just is. Now, I will accept where you are in your journey. You know, if you're putting behind some real childhood memories of your life, you know, by burying this song because I'm asking you to bury the song because it makes me angry. I'll accept where you are in your journey. However, when you continue to do it, I know where you stand. And that's all I have to say about that. Because, like, I'm comfortable. Yeah, I think one thing that's really important to be aware of is that most of us, when we talk about racism today, we're talking about the systems in place that privilege white people and oppress non-white people. That's what we're talking about when we talk about racism in general. When we talk about anti-black racism, racism, we're talking about the systems and structures that specifically right with black people and so on and so forth and i think it's important to know the difference there because what jasmine said about the word but also the way people get upset when we say like when monroe bergdorf said all white people are racist what she was not saying was all white people personally hate black people right what she was saying is all white people are a part of this system and they reinforce it through their through both their like conscious and unconscious behaviors that lift up white people and oppress black people. Now, when we talk about, so what do we do to, when we talk about changing policy, about getting organizations into the mix and thinking about the way that they operate, I think certain things to think about is, we'll start with like the group level and groups need to think about what it costs to be a part of their group. You have to understand the history of where we come from, the history of understanding the history of wealth in this country, right? I think you need to understand how much it costs to join a group, how much time it takes to join a group, you know, how often are your rehearsals. All of these things can play into the experience of different marginalized groups in terms of the amount of access they have. What type of rep do you sing? Do you do soul feds or do you do sight singing or part or part reading when you're doing your auditions, right? The, you know, learning music by ear is much more common in African-American communities, right? And when you ask people to sight sing and read music, you may be unintentionally introducing a bear that doesn't need to be there, right? So I think it's about understanding some of those things. When you talk about organizations, I think they have to be, I think the biggest thing is you have to be willing to take a chance on somebody whose resume doesn't look the same as the people you've been looking at before. Because the reality is most people of color don't have the opportunities to build that resume that looks the way like other people do. And I know I personally have experienced, I'm sure multiple times, I've applied for opportunities in the acapella community and have not gotten them, not because I wasn't qualified, but because somebody else's resume looked better than mine. And then, you know, with competitions and festivals, I think it's again, like you have to consider what you're doing from a monetary perspective. What are the expectations of your audience? right? Are you asking your audience to be quiet or something? What, what about the language that you allow in your competitions? What message do you send with your marketing, right? Do I see people that look like me when I see, when I see your flyers, when I see your ads about your competition? All of these things, I think, you know, we have to make decisions about that. And then I think the other piece here is who are you putting in positions of power? When I look at the people that are running these systems, do I see people like me? Do I see someone who might understand where I'm coming from? Who, if I run into a problem, right? That there's somebody that I can even talk to that I think will listen to me. Because I know that there are spaces that I don't go into because if I run into a problem, I don't believe that there's going to be anybody there who's even going to listen to me and I'm just going to be on an island by myself. And I've done enough of that in my life. Yeah. Isaiah, for you through the collegiate process, I mean, I guess I wonder both within and without. So starting within, like within the group at the group level, you talked about sort of over your time in collegiate acapella that you saw a pretty significant change in terms of inclusion 
resolution or at least starting to get that way. And I wonder what from the group level you would add to what Brian was talking about around how do you actively include? How do you actively bring that kind of change in at the group level? Right. At the college level and within groups, it goes from something as simple as where are you putting up flyers for your auditions? What Facebook groups are you advertising for? Who are you reaching out to? Are you sending it to the University Glee Club? Are you putting it out in the music buildings or in the library or in certain dorms or in certain local cafes or things like that? The piece about auditions that Brian mentioned was something that I... That has just been brought up to me recently in a couple conversations, and I realize how huge that is, how many groups don't realize. They just, oh yeah, we all, everybody, we've always done sheet music that our music director either bought from sheetmusicplus.com or put together in finale the night before rehearsal. And that's just always, it's that, it goes back to also what Jasmine was saying about, that's just the way it is. That's just how it's always been. And not being critical of the traditions. And the fact that how sheet music itself is a, this goes into my, in my class lines a little bit more, but sheet music itself is nothing but a Western tool to reinforce a certain kind of viewing music. Like, how do you, and I'm going through some a lot of my ranges now, how do you notate a run in, in acapella? How do you do a scoop? Is it for a half note? Is it for an eighth note, sixteenth? Is it a grace note? Or are you putting it right before? Like, there are a lot of things about how we view sheet music as a whole that don't apply to certain styles of music well. How do you notate a rap in an acapella arrangement that you're writing? There are so many ways that it's, this is something that's small. This is a smaller point, picture of a larger point, but just the ways that groups operate, be it the groups with a hundred years of institutional knowledge or the groups that just formed a couple years ago because their music directors saw Pitch Perfect in high school and really wanted to be a part of something like that when they got to college. Like, there are all these things that reinforce the larger image of what collegiate acapella is, and we're just getting to the process of breaking out of that, What both in what happens in our auditions, the kinds of songs we're doing, where we're taking gigs, where we're taking performances, who we're inviting to our concerts, and within the group, those are a lot of conversations that individuals need to have, both e-boards and social media managers and the people that are advertising their auditions and telling their friends and their classmates to come out, there just needs to be a bit more intentionality with where that outreach is coming from at the collegiate level and like on the group level. And within the collegiate level, with groups working together, to, not every university has an acapella council, although every university should, that has more than one group. Shameless plug for CASA's chapter program. <laughs> but with groups as a whole working together to define what acapella is, because as has been mentioned, there is this image of acapella as this something that corny kids did in college and that's not representative of the history of acapella as anybody that's gone to a take six concert will be able to tell you that's not representative of what acapella is becoming and that's not really representative of what pop music which most of acapella draws heavily from is looking into there is a i know brian will be able to speak far more eloquently on this than i will but there is a surprisingly deep a surprisingly deep repertoire of all white all male groups doing 
all black female <laughs> pop songs full heartedly and doing it from a perspective that is intended to be not genuine and intended to be humorous and not really having an idea of what that says about them or what that says about the image of acapella that they are putting out. Yeah. Jasmine, yeah, I'll I go ahead, Brian. Yeah. Say? I mean, let me say this. I don't think the average cis white man are honest and that is heterosexual or gay understands that misogynoir is a thing, that the specific oppression of black women is a thing and there's a term for it. And when so much of the labor of the justice movements in this country about so much of the opportunities, especially that LGBTQ men have, comes from the work that black women have done, making fun of their performances is offensive. And it is just so, yeah. like, it's so, it, like, it's so blind. Yeah. Jasmine, I, you know, we're talking about within the group stuff, but I wonder about sort of zooming out to the the organizational level, the the BHSs, the Sweet Ads, the Harmony Inks of the world, and what role they have and what can they be doing? Uh, you know, it seems like more is the answer, but I wonder what that looks like. You know, sometimes it's really hard to visualize because it just hasn't been done. You know, like the idea of inclusion just has not fully been realized in this country at all. And all of our organizations are really just microcosms of the country. It's just, you know, just a smaller version of exactly what the country is in a different way. And I want to say it was Isaiah that said, that was talking about uh, the hate of music in America, how my brain said, no, forget <laughs> what you were saying. It was about, what was it about? Western classical music, Western classical music and the sheet music and reading music and that being a means of education as far as music goes, when in reality, or or even validity as far as music goes, because generally in most music education programs, you're taught European music history. You're not taught really that much of American music history. You're not really taught how other ethnicities were involved in the creation of what we know as music today. So when that's all that is around you, when the average uh, American citizen that takes a, a general music class sees no one that's reflected in their curriculum, then, you know, there's no way they would be interested in some of the same things as someone who has had this formal Western classical music. Now, I, I myself am, am debunking some things within myself because my first degree was in opera, the classical, and then my second degree is in composition. So it's like, okay, well, now I have all this Western understanding, this European understanding of music, and how does that relate to what have I heard in church? How does that relate to the R&B and the jazz that I've heard? How does this relate? How can they come together? Organizations can do understanding the validity of what other cultures have to offer to your community is first and foremost the most important thing that can, I think understanding that there is no different, there is no such thing as no such thing as uneducated music. There's just no such thing. If it's learned by ear, if it's orally learned, or if it's learned off of sheet music, it is it is still good. It can still be as successful as you envision it to be. You know, it's just, it has to do with, well, are you willing to meet someone where they, and you guys are talking about auditions now, gratefully. Okay. Barbershop doesn't have auditions for a lot of things, I will say. I, not so much or this idea of what is good barbershop singing does come up. And what is bad barbershop singing? Because when we deal with the competition, um, it's like, oh, well, you know, this wasn't straight enough or this, you didn't lock enough, you didn't ring enough. And it's like, maybe my voice isn't what you are used to hearing. And so it doesn't sound the way you're used to hearing it. So that that could be it. 
And anyways, just understanding the validity in all of it, in all of it, I think it's a big step in, you know, making those strides to actually seeing people like not communities and saying, here's what barbershop music is more like, what are you listening to? Can I listen to it? Can you teach me what you know? Can cultural exchange, if that's what it comes down to? then that's the way that's the way it has to be. I don't think anyone should shy away from that at all. I don't like like Brian said, not met one black person who was like, oh, it says I'm wrong. We're <laughs> done here. I've not yet heard that at all. So I think just coming with your authentic self, not some, you know, preformed assessment of yourself to someone else to make sure you fit or you're acceptable to them. More like you just come with your say, this is what I want to know. This is what I have. How can we? How can we? You know? I love that. Yeah, that we, I think, really rings. And we need to take a little bit of a break. But on the other side, we'll be hearing more about how acapella can be sort of within the broader element of change and social change and how we in the community can can help foment that. So we'll be right back with Jasmine, Isaiah, and Brian. So stick with us. Acaville is broadening our network. We're introducing a new show and podcast called Vocal Perspective, hosted by myself, Rachel Schoenbaum, and the amazing Amanda Cornaglia. Each week, we speak with a new female or female-identifying member of the acapella community to talk about ideas, themes, and topics that affect us. Tune in at Acaville on Tuesdays at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, 6.30 p.m. Pacific, or on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Acaville, home of Vocal Perspective. And we're back with our last segment of Polyphony. Again, we have with us Jasmine Barnes from Halo, Brian Guffey, who's an activist in the community, and Isaiah Hawkins, who is a renowned vocalist, arranger, educator, and songwriter. And here's Aaron. Thanks, Rachel. Brian, you know, Jasmine, before the break, was talking about acapella being its own community, but in the context of, of society or the broader community and reflecting that both positively and negatively. And I wonder if there is a way for, you know, music in general has played a key element in social movements since there have been social movements and music. What's Is there a way for acapella, both sort of broadly and on a group or person level, to help support a lot of the social change efforts that are going on right now? Yeah, I think we'll start at the person level. It gives me a chance to say something I wanted to say before, which is I come from a lens of authenticity. And part of authenticity is not just your group's authenticity and the music that they make, but the opportunity to allow every member of your group to be their authentic self in the spaces that they inhabit. And that means when things are going on, like what have been going on over the past several months, that they have a space to come and talk about what that experiences for them and also they have a space where they know somebody isn't going to be asking them every five minutes how are you because the answer is not great and so i think it's really important that you cultivate spaces where people can be who they are and they're not required to put on appearances and performances in order to feel safe accepted and welcome inside of the group and then i think as we touched on music has always been a piece of social protest movements and the reality is that I think our I think members of acapella groups can do great things by lending their voices to music to raise money for for organizations. I think that's that's a wonderful thing to do. You know whether that's setting up a live stream of some sort and you know 
maybe playing some of your videos and like on a Twitch stream and taking donations in this interesting moment we're in where we can't all actually get together. But also I think members being willing to mask up and go out to protests and lend their voices there to add the music of the group to the protest, right? Working with the protest organizers, you know, following their lead. That's always very important is to follow the lead of the organizers. But like music adds something to protest. There's always chance at protests, right? And the music is another level when you look at some of the big social protest movements of our generations there's always music there and vocal music especially acapella has an incredible power to be wherever the people are right so i think taking that opportunity and using that is is something that is a really something that only acapella groups of all stripes can do right you don't need a guitar you don't need a piano you just need voices and the people right Isaiah, you know, Brian talks about making a group a safe space for being your authentic self. And I wonder from your perspective as having led groups, how do you do that? I mean, how do you get a culture of a group to a place where people can be themselves fully? I think it comes just on a first glance on a personal level with the ability to trust the people in the room with you and being able to feel comfortable expressing yourself in whatever shape, form you come in, using rehearsal as an example, being able to feel that you are at home with the group of people you're with, no matter what kind of day you've had, and you can be with them and be comfortable. That helps it just you feel comfortable as a person. From a musical standpoint, of course, it helps because you make better music in a place where you're welcome. And when it comes to cultural seismic events like this, it provides an additional place for people to be able to express what they want to see in the world, which at this moment is a very powerful thing. So in individual group members, it comes to just being open to that and being inviting and encouraging people to share their best selves with state of fits. Once a week, we would start a rehearsal with a happy crappy where you just share one good thing that's going on with your life, one good, one happy, and then one bad thing, one crappy. And there were weeks where just everybody was in a crappy. Everybody was just in that kind of mood. And again, that kind of a unified emotional setting is helpful. And especially in times like this, where everybody uniformly is not having a good time for one reason or other, it provides a space for you to be able to just be your best self. Again, these are just good things to have at a human level, just to be able to make, to want to make people feel comfortable around you. And that helps as well as Brian mentioned, finding people to go out to protest with, finding group that if that's something you feel comfortable with, using your platform, which is huge in doing songs that address these issues. Like one of my favorite acapella songs all time is when Vocal Rush covered All Good People by Delta Ray. And there's that video they did from, I think it was Knack, however many years ago that I've watched a hundred times and I will probably watch a hundred more in the near future. But just being able to use your platform to powerfully address the world around you and on top of that, being able to use your platform to raise money, as was mentioned, one of the biggest examples I have there is giving a shout out to the University of Michigan acapella community. They had a fundraiser where the groups collectively and they got an organization to match their donation. In June, they raised over $40,000 for a local bail fund in the Detroit Justice Center in Detroit, which is huge. It's enormous. And being able to use their platform as a group of a ton of acapella groups, I think 16, 15 or 16 acapella groups all putting out the that notice in their circles with their friends and families and then getting that larger social awareness around an important topic to show more than anything 
that music isn't neutral. Acapella isn't neutral. And that's a statement that we can make as people and within our groups that it's not an acceptable option to be neutral because it's necessary to speak out and take a stand. And using our music and our platforms and our interpersonal connections as a way to do that is incredibly powerful. So Jasmine, picking up on Isaiah's point about not being neutral and staking a position. I'm a chorus section leader. I'm a in a quartet. I'm a, just a chorus member. And I, let's say, I don't know where to start with this. I mean, what is your suggestion about where people begin? You know, if they're just sort of starting to kind of go through the journey that you were talking about earlier, about not being there, but knowing they want to get there someday, where do you start? I just want to say, you know, the idea of what Isaiah said of someone actually putting their money where their mouth is as far as supporting a, that's like, that says Eon. Like, imagine what kind of message that's sending out to not just post a Black Lives Matter statement on like a social media page, but to actually put your money where your mouth is and show people like, I am for you. Like, I am for you. That would automatically make people be interested. Like, hmm, what do they have to sing about? What What are they saying? What are, what are they doing? How can I? How can I? Because like, think about people who are protesting in the Detroit area and that may have gotten arrested for literally nothing for protested for, and the issues, the grander issues in America is not being able to make bail. And so that's how a lot of people get caught up in the prison system. So think about finding out that you were bailed out by the donation of some acapella group. Let's say you're a musician. That would automatically make you want to be a part of musician. You might still just want to give a thank you or just find out who these people were that actually donated to you. It says so much to actually actively be a part of what you're talking about the call and not just no releasing statements. I, you know, I think that's a big step. For some organizations, a, a statement is a huge step. They've never, I've literally seen this like with my own eyes, like this year alone, that some organizations have literally never, ever picked a side for any social causes. And actually, we're seeing organizations, corporations, we're seeing across America, we're seeing people actually care. Like, even if they don't release, releasing a statement. Now that's like a huge step in itself. And it's also, that is causing such an unsettling in the people that are not, that they're becoming a minority, that we're seeing them when, they, when they're actively, you know, being against it. So neutrality is just as bad as not saying anything at all, not doing anything at all, or being against it completely. Neutrality is just, if you don't, if I don't see you actually physically caring about me, then it's going to be hard for me where you stand. So neutrality always says the worst of it. It really, it just does. And so some people don't understand that. They think it's called like radical left, you know, if we're going to where, you know, they think that there's like an agenda for people that kind of just want everyone to do well in the country. There's no agenda except for it's just fair. I mean, it's just fair. I, I don't even understand how Black Lives Matter is a controversial statement. It just matters. Like, that's it. Not Trump's everyone else. Black is better than everyone. It just matters. You matter too. It's just that it doesn't look like we matter so much. So now we're trying to say it. People don't understand that that's the place where it comes from. And if people don't understand that them saying, well, you know, I think there are good people on both sides and things like this. Come on. Think about who's being hurt. Think about who's the marginalized group. Think about who's the smaller percentage in the country. I mean, it's just so many things that play that, that it's like, oh, over your eyes. Yes, it's not that many people of that are speaking out about it, 
but it actually is. And minorities grouped together is the majority if we're thinking about it in that way. Well, Jasmine, I think that's a great place to to stop for this hour. <laughs> As predicted, we barely even scratched the surface, but I think it was a great place to start. And, and Isaiah, Brian, Jasmine, I really appreciate your time. Thank you all so much. That was our topic for today was on racism and acapella. And we want to thank so much our panel today who were Jasmine Barnes, member of Halo, Barbershop's first international African-American quartet. Brian Guffey, who's an activist and active in the acapella community. And Isaiah Hawkins, who is acapella vocalist, arranger, songwriter, and educator, in addition to relationship manager with CASA. Thank you so much for joining us. And please tune in again next week when we will be covering festivals and competitions in a distanced era.